0: Grab your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Colossians. We've been uh, studying through the book of Colossians. This is week 10. Um, I'm one that raised my hand twice when Luis says, has it been a rough week? And have it, has it been a victorious week? It was both. <laughs> and I'm happy to be here this morning and uh, fellowshipping with you. And uh, And as we continue to go through our study in the book of Colossians, one of the distinctives of Calvary Chapel, if you knew, is anytime we're gathered, We're traveling through a book of the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse, seeing scripture in context and allowing the Lord to grow us. And so encouraging that. Also, the school of ministry, um, we had Q&A time this past week after the session. And so we're going to do that maybe two more times as the uh, classes go on. Um, really looking to answer all questions. And it is evident that that is exposing that we are in a season um, where God is really wanting to grow us and ground us. We've grown a little bit in numbers, but we want to grow in stature and maturity uh, and have our foundation shored up and have us all on the same page so that we can walk together and minister together and grow together and love on each other. Amen. Amen. Um, And that's extremely important. Um, And so I want to use time wisely. As as you look at the book of Colossians, I know most of you have been here for most of the studies. Um, We're looking at another one of what Paul, what the Bible calls or or what we know as a uh, prison epistle of Paul. In other words, Paul is writing the Colossians from prison. We know that. And as uh, kind of Paul's M.O. in all of his epistles is to divide them neatly between doctrine and and practical application. In fact, this one's no different in the first two chapters of Colossians, and we've seen that, we've talked about it. We see that Paul is giving us doctrine all centered around Christ's preeminence, because that's what the book of Colossians really outlines is the preeminence of Jesus Christ. Amen. As much as Ephesians outlined the beauty of everything that God is doing in the church and with the church and his plans for the church in Colossians, we see the beauty and the power of Christ himself, his deity, his, his, his preeminence. And so in chapter one, we saw Christ's preeminence being declared, his preeminence being declared for us. And we saw that in many ways. Remember, we saw it as it relates to the gospel message, as it it relates to uh, the creation itself, as Christ is both the creator and the sustainer of everything we know and see. Amen. Um, And we saw it in relation to the church and even in relation to ministry in chapter one. Chapter two, we're seeing Christ's preeminence being defended. And so we're looking at now being defended. And then the last two chapters, three and four, we'll see Christ's preeminence being demonstrated in practical application as we'll look at many things there. Um, It's been beautiful so far. As we've looked at chapter two, it's almost as a parent writing to children. It's beautiful. Paul is writing to people whom he's never seen them face to face, nor have they seen him face to face as he has never been to Colossae as an apostle. He's writing based upon feedback from Epaphras, who is the pastor there, we believe, and he's writing them to exhort them in love because false teachers are creeping into the church in Colossian, the region of Colossians, Laodicea, and so Paul is writing them. And so what we want to do is stand and read, and then we'll dive in. We've made our way down through verse 10. We're going to pick our study up in verse 11, but for context, let's go back to Colossians chapter 2, verse 1, and we're going to read down, Amen. All right. I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both in the Father and of Christ both of the Father and of Christ, in Christ's deity, verse 3, and whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you through pervasive words. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ, for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him, who is the head of all principality and power. In him, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism in which you Also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. And Father, we do thank you for the text that you've put before us. Lord, we even ask now that you will remove from our hearts and minds the cares and the burdens of this life. As you've called us to occupy until you come. Lord, I pray that you would allow us to lay all of that down at your feet now, that you would even remove the distractions from this room, that we would clearly hear what you have to say by your Spirit as you teach us, Lord, individually and collectively, growing us and strengthening us. Lord, let us hear your voice. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. You know, this week, somebody shared with me an article written by John Cooper. Some of you may know him. I guess he's the lead singer or one of the singers of Skillet. Anybody know Skillet? Yeah, I, Skillet, not my type of music, but good guys. I tell you, I was in a Skillet concert. I found myself in it twice. Both times I had to head for the door. It was too loud. <laughs> <laughs> um, the one of them was an outdoor concert, actually. Um, but he, he wrote an article in response to reasons that uh, Marty Sampson, who is uh, one of Hillsong's songwriters, reasons for denouncing the faith. And so John Cooper wrote this, and I just want to read you his response. I thought it was, was classic. It says, it is time for the church to rediscover the preeminence of the word and to value the teaching of the word. We need to value truth over feeling, truth over emotion." And what we are seeing now is the result of the church raising up influencers who did not uh, supremely value truth, who have led a generation who also do not believe in the supremacy of truth. And now those disavowed leaders are proudly still leading and influencing boldly away from the truth. Very interesting that he would write that. As the church has put a lot of stock and value in People who are talented um, as opposed to people who are grounded in truth, you know, and because uh, Christian leaders, we, 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 uh, we are being looked at in a lot of different ways. And I think that's appropriate for me to mention this morning as we're in a season of growing and being grounded in truth. Um, and it's very important that we understand the reason why we are even having a school of ministry or focusing on discipleship or even one of the reasons why Calvary Chapel is so committed to the teaching of the word of God is because it's the word of God that grows people, that strengthens faith, that washes us of all the junk of the world and grounds us in the truths of God so that we're not moved. Amen. Amen. And this is extremely important. And, and it goes with what Paul is saying here is Paul, remember who's writing from prison, never seen them. They've never seen Paul. Paul says, I have this great conflict for you back up in chapter one. And we talked about the fact that Paul was in a spiritual battle on behalf of the Colossians as he cared for them, that they would be grounded and unmoved from the truth of God. And I think every parent feels that way for their children and every pastor feels that way for the congregation that he's been called to. And even this morning, As I I see uh, growth, you know, as I told y'all, and I'm not going to go into it again this morning. um, I love what God is doing, but numbers don't move me. Numbers just says we got more work to do (laughs) to make sure everybody's grounded because that's foremost. Okay, that's what we're here for. And Paul is dealing with that. And so if you remember what he said as we wrapped up last week, so he said in verse 8, beware lest anyone should cheat you." you. Remember that? You know, he said, as you receive Christ, verse 6, walk in him. You know, you received him in simplicity, walk with him in simplicity. Remember, Paul said to the Corinthians in first, Second Corinthians eleven three. he says, I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve. So you may be moved from the simplicity that is in Christ Jesus. There's a simpleness, a simplicity that's found in Christ Jesus that Paul wants us to stay in. And so he says, as you received in verse 6, walk in him, rooted and grounded. Remember he said that last week? Beware, verse 8, lest anyone cheat you, remember, through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men and and according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. He reminded us, remember, verse 9, for in him, Jesus Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Do y'all remember that? In other words, all of everything that God is, is permanently and eternally found in the person of Jesus Christ, who we learn in chapter one is both the creator of everything in heaven and on earth. He created it. It was created by him and it was created for him. He has preeminence in all things. Remember that? So beautifully. And so it says here, and you are complete in him, which is wonderful. I got to remind you. The word complete means that you are fully furnished and lacking nothing because the enemy might want to lie to you and false teachers want to lie to you and say that, well, you need some extra things. You need these things also, and they want to tempt you and lead you astray, but you are complete in Christ Jesus. And notice it says, who is the head of all principalities and powers, the angelic host. They were created by him as well and for him and under his control. And so therefore, as you have come to know Jesus Christ, you've come to know God himself. Jesus says, if you had known me, then you've known the Father. If you've seen me, then you've seen the Father. You need to look no further. <laughs> in other words, amen? amen? So you have come to know Christ. You have come to know the God of all the universe. And I want to encourage you in that today as we continue. And so with that, he then goes into these things. Now, remember, there are many, many false teachers and false teachings that are now beginning to plague uh, the church in Colossae. They're coming against them. The Judaizers, which we're going to see deals with first, the Gnostics and, and, and bringing in philosophies and heresies and, and things that are contrary to the truth that they have already received. And so Paul is contending for that in their hearts because he loves them. And that's extremely, extremely important. Are y'all with me? I don't want to lose nobody. Let's look at it. Notice as we continue, he says, In him you were also, notice he says, circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by the putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And it's very interesting he brings this picture up because in the New Testament, we see that the Judaizers, we call them, or the Bible calls them, many Jews that would come to the church and try to, if you will, uh, impart on them or place upon them the burden of keeping the law on top of believing in Christ by faith. In other words, bringing a list of rules and regulations with faith in Christ as if faith in Christ is not enough. Are you with me? And we see that uh, throughout the Bibles in the book of Acts, when the the Judaizers showed up in Antioch and they said, man, y'all, y'all are good. Y'all cool. It looks like God has done some good stuff here. But, you know, it seems like y'all are missing some things. You know, it's good to have faith in Christ, but you're not really saved unless you also become circumcised and you keep the law. And that became a place of contention in the early church. Y'all with me? Okay, right around Acts 15, Acts 13 to 15. So much so that they had to go to Jerusalem and have a council meeting about the thing. It was about to be a knockdown drag out as Paul rolled up his sleeves and was ready to punch anybody in the mouth that disagreed with the truth of the scripture. Thank, I thank God for Paul because I'm a Gentile. And they concluded that day, why should we put a burden on the Gentiles that we and our fathers were not even able to bear? You know? To put on them the keeping of the law. And see, this is kind of what this is going But I'm jumping ahead of myself. So this circumcision, if you remember from a Jewish perspective, and an Old Testament perspective, was a sign that was given to Abraham for the covenant that God was going to make with Abraham. Y'all remember that? God came to him and said, I'm promising that you're going to have a son. And through your son, all the earth will be blessed. And Abe was like, you know, Lord, I don't even have an offspring. And God had promised to do this. And so... Abraham and, and Sarah had figured that God needed help because he was taking too long. You ever felt that way? <laughs> I don't know why. God, your timing is off. You know, you've made this promise. You done took too long. And we didn't we miss the, the window of opportunity. So I guess what you meant is for us to figure out how to bring this about ourselves. So what we're going to do is take this handmade Hagar, who we got when I didn't have faith and I was in fear and I ran down to Egypt. And then we brought her back. And so, well, since we got her anyway, we're going to use her to fulfill this promise that you made that you've been laid on. Basically, I'm, I'm just paraphrasing. you find none of that in Genesis, okay? This is the thought process. So they have this child through Hagar, the handmaid, the servant of Sarah named Ishmael. Y'all remember that, right? And God shows up and he says, listen, I'm going to fulfill this promise um, through your wife, Sarah. Genesis 17, 17 on the screen. Here's Abe's response. So Abe fell down on his face and laughed. You see that? I like that. He laughed. And it's good that you can laugh with the Lord. And the Lord, and the Lord, because the Lord could have smoked him. I mean, in other words, they incinerated him right down the back. Like, oh, you think it's funny? This is why I can't be God. You think it's funny? I mean, and there's just a black spot on the ground. Abe, Abe's gone. And, and, and it wasn't really that. But he laughed. Here's why. Look at it. He laughed in his heart saying, shall a child be born? Listen to a man who is 100 years old and shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child. Do you see that? It's wonderful. In other words, what Abe is trying to say. In fact, the next chapter verse, chapter 18, verse 11 on the screen says, now Abraham and Sarah were old. (laughs) The scriptures keep saying that. (laughs) They were old, well advanced in age, and Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. And so it was very clear that the scriptures imply that in other words, everything was dead that it would take to make this happen on their behalf. They were, beha- they were beyond the ability themselves to do anything to bring about this promise. Yet God waits until that's the case and shows up and says, Hey, I'm going to fulfill that promise. And, and in another place, Sarah even laughed. Y'all remember that? Okay, good. In other words, this is something that God fulfilled. He gave them the sign of the covenant, and he fulfilled the covenant himself without so much the work of flesh. And don't get me wrong. They had to go ahead. I mean, stuff had to happen. You know, you follow me. But it was nothing that they could bring about on their own. And I love that. In other words, God was trying to even back then paint a picture. A picture that this is something that goes beyond just the flesh. And I, I love that. As God told Abraham to take his only son, Isaac. Now, Ishmael was already born when he says that. He says, I want you to take your son, your only son, whom you love, and sacrifice him on a mountain that I'm going to show you, which was Mount Moriah, which is the place where Christ was crucified. We know that by scripture as well. And it's very interesting that all of this is, is the case because God was trying to show the Jews, even in the sign of the covenant, this is a sign of something that I'm going to do. It has not a sign of anything that you're going to do. Why is that? 1 Corinthians 129 says that no flesh shall glory in his presence. And I love this because now the Jews are holding to this sign as though this sign, the physical act of being circumcised, has some bearing on their righteousness. And this is what Paul again is pointing out that, listen, Colossians, you don't need to perform this act of religious act of tradition in order to be righteous before God. Listen to me, everybody. He's trying to get us as Gentiles to understand. Listen to me if you just get this part. He's trying to say that there is no list of rules or regulation by which you're going to make yourself righteous before God, because that is the very definition of religion itself. And religion is dead and accomplishes nothing. He's trying to say that this is a work that God is going to do in his, with his spirit in you, and this is going to bring it to pass. And as we look at this unfold, that's what he's saying. In him, you were also circumcised. Paul is saying to the Gentiles in Coloss and in Laodicea, as the letter is going to go to both, he's saying, listen, Gentiles, you've been circumcised with the circumcision made, notice in verse 11, without hands. That's always a reference to a direct work of God. You know, Abraham looked for a city that wasn't built with hands. Remember that? He was looking for something beyond this world. And he says here to us that there's a circumcision that you've been circumcised with that has nothing to do with your hands. Now, many of us in the room have probably been circumcised. I was there when they circumcised my son. Very, very uh, traumatic experience. I almost knocked the doctor out, but it was a a lady doctor and, you know, I was there with him. Then he squeezed my little finger, you know, and my heart was breaking as it was happening. I don't know if anybody else ever been in a room when it happened. Yeah. Daz, isn't that rough? Yeah. They should send security in there with us (laughs) because that lady almost got knocked out. I'm telling you, um, yes, we were, but, but Paul is saying that, listen, that doesn't make you righteous. Religion doesn't make you righteous. He says, we were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by the putting off. Look of the body of sins of the flesh, By the circumcision, notice, of Christ. In other words, there's been a work of Christ in the life of the believer that is considered a circumcision. Now, circumcision means the cutting around or the cutting of all. The picture to them in Old Testament was that they would cut off the the skin, and it's a picture of the cutting of the flesh, if you will. In other words, that there'd be a work of the Spirit. And he's saying here that Christ has done this work by his spirit in your life by the putting off of the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, here's the picture. He's trying to make it very plain to us that there's been a spiritual transaction that has happened in the life of a believer. And this is something that we got to understand. It's not a work of the flesh. It's a work of the spirit. At the moment that you had faith in Christ Jesus, there was an internal circumcision that happened. In other words, that he uh, transformed you, if you will, by his spirit. Notice it says, putting off is the way it's described, the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. In other words, the body of sins of the flesh, we are no longer bound to. Although until we are resurrected, we still live in the flesh. We're no longer bound to the sins of the flesh and the power of the flesh. Does that make sense? That means for every believer, you have been transformed into a new living being. You have been born again. You have a brand new life. And this old man is dead, so we must reckon him so. And now we must embrace the work that Christ has done by his spirit in our lives. Amen? We're not going to be made in any way righteous by the works of the flesh. Notice he gives us this other picture as we continue. Notice he says, buried with him in baptism in which you were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him, Christ, from the dead. I love this. He gives us this picture. In other words, buried with him in baptism. Now, the interesting thing about baptism, listen very carefully. Baptism, because other other cultures and religions had a baptism ritual, if you will, okay? But baptism in the ancient times, it simply meant that you were identifying with something. Are y'all with me? You were identifying and putting yourself in, in, in direct, if you will, a direct relationship with a belief or you placing your faith in something. And, and listen, the early church, the early church didn't even do, for instance, altar calls the way we do them now. We do altar calls sometimes and people respond and, and we do that in various ways. But in the early church, they didn't do an altar call where you raise your hand and you accept Christ into your heart or you walk down out. The no, they did a call to baptism. In other words, to be publicly baptized was to publicly state that I believe and identify myself with Jesus Christ. And often with that came persecution. And for many of the Jews, it came the loss of of business and the loss of home and the loss of family. It was a public declaration of something that had already happened on the inside. And so he uses this picture buried with him in baptism. We see this throughout the New Testament. In other words, the picture of the burial as Christ, remember, part of the gospel is the burial. Y'all remember that, right? First Corinthians 15, Paul's gospel was that Christ died. Amen. For our sins was buried. And on the third day was raised again. So you have death, burial, and resurrection. That's the gospel. Okay. We got to have all of it. Amen. I so he had to be, he had to die to pay for our sins. He was buried, as the scripture says, but so he could be raised into the newness of life, which is the victory that we now have in him, which is seen through his resurrection. Amen? Because just as he was resurrected, we shall be as well. And so the picture of the whole gospel happening, he says, you were buried with him in baptism, past tense. The, the, the imagery is, is perfect. It's beautiful. It's saying that something happened in your life as you identify with Christ. You died as well. In which you also notice were past tense raised with him. How? Through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Your faith in the fact that God raised Christ on the third day means that he will raise you again one day as well. Do you understand? Past tense. Past tense. So now there's a spiritual transaction that has already taken place, even though we drag around these raggedy old deteriorating dead bodies that love to sin. I didn't mean to put you down. I just want to make sure we're all are completely aware of where we are. Okay? Yes, our bodies love to sin, just like the pigs love to go out and lay in the slop. Our bodies want to sin, but we've been transformed. And because we've been transformed, the sin that we used to enjoy, we no longer enjoy the way we used to enjoy it. We struggle with it now because there's been a new, a transformation that has taken place on the inside. Now you are spiritually born again. And sin is different than the way sin used to be in our lives. We struggle with it. We, we hate it. and We bury the burden of it. And he says, look at verse 13. And you being dead, notice in your trespasses, And this uncircumcision of your flesh, notice he has made alive together with him, having forgiven. Notice all your trespasses. Now, this is so beautiful. Paul is talking a matter of fact of what has already happened in your life. But you got to understand something for a moment. Because as I fellowship with you and I talk with you and I pray with you, it becomes very evident with me. Sometimes that some of you struggle with your salvation. Sometimes some of you struggle with what God has truly done because of how you feel and what you deal with. And remember, this ain't about how you feel. This is about the truth that just, this has just stated for you. Amen? You understand that? In other words, when you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you became a brand new being, even though you still struggle with things that you struggled with. Well, you didn't struggle before. You now struggle with things that you used to be free to enjoy. Does that make sense? And now you struggle with it because it's evident that something has taken place by the Spirit of God, who not only you died in, but you've been raised in now as well. Now, With that, then, it says, look at the verse again, verse 13. He has made alive together with him. This is beautiful. We are connected by the spirit of God to Christ who has been raised. And we see this throughout scripture. He has been raised. And now we are, if you will, raised in him. And we are new in him. And because of that, he has forgiven all of our trespasses. Did you catch that? And you might say, well, Pastor Kevin, I don't understand because I don't, I don't feel that way sometimes. And I don't, I'm, I'm trying to deal with these things. The scripture just says he has forgiven all your trespasses. And you're still fooling with them. The Bible is saying you need to lay them down and believe what this says. Don't believe the lie of the enemy that comes into your head and don't believe how you feel. You need to believe what scripture says because this is proclaiming truth. And see, the more of this that you Uh, devour the more faith you'll have in what this says and you'll be able to stand strong in what this says but if you avoid this and you don't engage the Lord on a daily basis then then you are struggling and you're not even engaging in that which is going to give you the power to have victory And in order to have victory, you must be a person who is in the word of God. We know that. The Bible tells us that. He who meditates on the word day and night should be like a tree planted by rivers of living water, unmovable. What they put their hands to will prosper. They will yield fruit in their season. It is as those who uh, acknowledge him in all their ways, he will direct your paths. These are all of the things that the scriptures tell us as you turn to the Lord in faith, believing what this says. This has a powerful effect on us. We're spiritual beings now. This is spiritual food. So you can't get saved and grow having said, I did that. I got saved. Great. Now I'm just going to chill out. It doesn't work that way. When the Pentecostal movement came, they focused on an experience. Then the charismatic movement came, they focused on gifts. But we can't leave the word behind because you must devour the word in order to grow up. And the Bible says this, First uh, Peter chapter 2, verses 1, it says, laying aside a whole bunch of stuff, go look at it up on your own time, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. And that's why I'm calling you out today as a disciple. You have a responsibility tomorrow. It's easy today because we, we're doing a lot of the work for you. <laughs> tomorrow, though, you got to engage the Lord. You got you to gotta go to him in prayer about the things you struggle with. Because here's the thing. If you think that by not talking with the Lord about what you're dealing with that somehow, you know, it won't come up and everything's good. Yet you're still dragging around the burden of it and the guilt. And nothing's changing, right? Why won't you then talk with him and give it to him and say, "Lord, walk me through this situation. Deliver me from it. Show me in your word, Lord God." what I need to do and what this says about where I'm at with right now today in my life. Because the word is for you today, right where you are. The Bible says it's, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, able to discern between the carnal and the spiritual, and is a discerner of the thoughts and motives and intents of the heart. So and when you read the word, the word is reading you, figuring exactly where you're at, and telling you what you need to know. It's an exchange that's spiritual. And we have to engage God based on the parameters by which he's given us to do so. And it's on the pages of his word and it's in prayer. You can't get it through philosophy. You can't get it through psychology. You can't get it through 50 hours of of, of, uh, counseling at 50 bucks an hour or whatever it is. I don't know. You got to engage God where he said, see me, seek me early, come find me. This is where he's at, amen? Amen. These are the things that have taken place in your life and I want you to believe them. And so he's forgiven you all your trespasses. Notice in verse 14, having wiped out, the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Beautiful words. I love it. It says it this way in Ephesians chapter two, verse 15, it says having abolished in his flesh, the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. Now, here's the thing I want you to understand. We know for sure That the law of God is perfect. Y'all know that, right? In fact, there's nothing wrong with the law of God. It's just that we were at enmity with it because it was contrary to us, as the verse has said, because we were sinners, we were fallen, and we were in sin. And for that reason, the word of God, the law itself, was condemning us to what? Death. And there was no way for us to satisfy it, no way for us to please it. The law of God is a standard. In fact, on the screen, Galatians says this, Therefore, the law was a tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. In other words, the law was God's perfect standard, or is, I should say, God's perfect standard for holiness and righteousness. It's perfect. The problem is we can't fulfill it. Jesus made it very clear in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, You have heard it said that thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say, as Jesus gets to the heart and the spirit of the law, if you've looked at someone to lust after them, you have committed adultery. Where y'all? In the heart. And therefore, the law constantly exposes us for the sinners that we are. So it's a standard of perfection by which we cannot obtain. That's why it's a tutor to tell us, to show us how awful we are and how much in need we were in for a savior let me put it in in this perspective now we got some big guys in the room but i think this still applies let's use the basketball analogy let's say the perfect standard to be a basketball player is to be 6'5, 250 pounds and to be able to still run a 40 40 uh, meter sprint uh in less than 4.3 seconds raise your hand if you meet that standard i'm, I'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> nobody all right nobody meets that standard you get my point right it's the same thing with the law god is saying this is my standard of perfection and nobody measured up to it at all and the only man who's ever met that standard is the is the god man who was both 100% god and 100% man jesus christ the righteous one who laid down his life as a propitiation for ours by shedding his own blood that we might be saved amen We understand that. All men are sinners. There's none righteous, no, not one. Yet a man was required to go to the cross because the Redeemer had to be kin. So he had to be a man. He couldn't be an angel. All men are sinners, so no man qualifies. There's the problem. So God does the miracle of becoming man. And living 100% as a man, in every way being tempted, living and growing up and living among us, and then living a perfect life, which then qualifies to be the sacrifice to pay for our sin, that we could be saved because none of us could do it on our own. So then with the understanding of that, what we have just done, and this is freeing for you, is we have just destroyed Even the notion that you might have in your mind or in your heart by any false teacher that you need to now add something to your faith in Christ in order to be saved. That is a lie from the pit of hell. And that's the definition of religion. Religion is a system of works by which man attempts to make himself right before God. Doesn't ever work though. Because on your best day, you can't do it. That's freedom. So again, it means that all of us are on the same level playing field. There's nobody in the room that's actually righteous in and of themselves. Everybody in the room is a what? Sinner. We all get to heaven the same way through who? Christ Jesus. But well, let's, let's leave it at that. Let's leave it at that. Now, here's the thing. This is why Paul tells us that in the book of Galatians, and we know this. This is All this is repeating stuff that we know. But if you don't know, I want you to know. He says, if anyone comes to you with the gospel that's different than the one that you've already received, which is that salvation is through faith in Christ and Christ only, who, who is God, who became a man, who, who, who died, was buried, and rose again. And if anybody brings something different, then let them be, who, what's, the, what's the Greek word, y'all? Anathema. I love that word. Don't y'all like that? I want to find a way to use it one of these days. Anathema. It just sounds really cool. Anathema means let them be damned to the lowest parts of hell. That sounds pretty rough, but that's Paul. Pretty rough, isn't it? Let them be damned to the lowest parts of hell. Why? Because it's so crucial that we, the church, understand that there is nothing that we can do to make ourselves righteous from God, and we don't have to because he paid the ultimate price for that. So now here's the thing, no matter how you feel about yourself and what you're dealing with, if you have placed your faith in Christ, he has forgiven all your trespasses. Now you need to surrender to him and grow in him that you can live and walk victoriously through how the Holy Spirit will work in you. But you need the word in order to do that as well. Okay. It can't just be spirit only. And it can't just be word only. It needs to be a little bit of both. Amen. You need the word and you need the power of the Holy Spirit working in your life. And and this is what we're doing. So Paul says, listen, he's wiped out the handwriting, verse 14, of requirements that was against us. In other words, he's wiped it out. He's moved it out of the way. We're no longer looking at a list of rules and trying to check those off every day. Okay, we don't do that anymore for righteousness. In other words, we only fulfill the law now through the working of the Spirit of God in us. Y'all with me? He says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering. He gives a list and he says against such there is no what? Law. Why? Because the Spirit of God that's in us is God in us. Amen? God the Father, God the Son, the Holy Spirit, and the work of the Spirit in us leads us into righteousness in God. So he's removed that out of the way. Because it was against us. It was condemning us. Why? Which was contrary to us. We had no ability to meet it. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Not that the law was bad, but our inability to keep it was the issue. Notice as we end in verse 15. Now pay, pay a close attention and we'll pick it up here next week. Having disarmed principalities and powers. Having made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them, in it, in, in in it what in his work of the cross. It's very interesting for us to begin to fathom all that that means, and we could probably do a whole conference on, on all that that implies. Because you got to see that Satan did everything to prevent Jesus from going to the cross. I move on. <laughs> It gets louder. Okay, there we go. And we're going to triumph over that in, 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 in power here. Look. Yeah, we're not going to let that stop us. Listen up. It says, having disarmed principalities and powers. Now, we just finished the book of Ephesians. We understand that principalities and powers is the angelic host, the falling ones in particular, that come against us, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. Right? Y'all remember that? In heavenly places. Okay? So we have, we have all of that going on. Now, we know that he created them, and he's over them. They're under his feet. We understand that. But he disarmed them even. He disarmed them so that they no longer have power over us. Do you remember that they did have power over this? The Bible tells us in Ephesians 2 that we once, when we were disobedient, when we were um, unbelievers, walked according to the prince of the power of the air. He had direct influence over our lives because we were given over to that. We were against God. The Bible says we were enmity with God. Y'all remember that? Okay, so we were at at war, if you will, with him, and he once had that influence. But now he's saying that Christ has disarmed that. And that's beautiful, that no longer, listen, no longer am I under the power or the influence of the enemy, and nor are you. We have been free from that in Christ Jesus. So he says, having disarmed principalities and powers, he says here he made a public spectacle of them. It's amazing. All that Satan did to keep Jesus from going to the cross, all the way through scripture. We don't have time to fathom all that he did from Genesis six and all the way through the old Testament from the destruction of all the baby boys in Egypt, even when Moses was coming along. And then when Jesus was being born or coming to the world, all that Herod destroyed in Bethlehem killing all of those babies and everything that Satan has done, the Holocaust, all to to just destroy the work of God, even if you will. And and yet 2000 years ago on the cross, Jesus went to the cross and paid for sin. He went down if you will and proclaimed victory and set the captives free. Y'all remember all of that? Emptied out Abraham's bosom and went all and sent it all up into heaven and in glory. And one day he will return on a white horse with us riding shotgun on our horses according to scripture. I'm praying that there'll be theme music and everything playing <laughs> as we ride back in victory, you know? He's completely victorious. He stripped them of all their power, triumphed over them in it, and all of his work. I love how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15, where he says, "When this, so that this corruptible, when this corruptible has put on incorruptible, and this mortal has put on immortality, it still hadn't happened yet, then shall be brought the pass the sand that is written. Death is swallowed up in victory, even. And one day, even death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? We read this at funerals. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory?" the sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law but thanks be to God he says who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ and victory is what we have in him and victory is what you can have this week I believe you know because no matter what your struggle is today and we've been praying all day and people with you know, cancer and things that we struggle with down here and we live in a fallen world we do But you are a new believer and a new being in Christ. You have life. And what I'm saying to you today when we leave this place is that I I encourage you this week to walk daily with the Lord Jesus Christ. As freely you have received him, he says, so you should walk in him, right? Not just check in on Sunday. So you should walk. Walk means the manner in which you live your life day by day should be one that is engaging Christ Jesus, You have to understand that as a believer. So tomorrow, I I encourage you to be in your word. And you might say, well, Pastor Kevin, I don't understand a lot of the stuff I'm reading. It's okay. Write your questions down. We love questions, all the leaders. We do. We love them because you force us to grow when you ask us questions. So bring your questions. No big deal. But if you're reading it, I know the spirit that God has put in you is going to use that word in you. Does that make sense? You don't have to understand all of it. You just need to open it up and get busy. And he's gonna reveal stuff to you that you, you're gonna be like, man, I, and you're gonna to come to me and ask me, well, Pastor Kevin, I was reading, and I felt like it meant this, but what does it really mean? And I'm gonna tell you what it means and you gonna are realize, man, God showed me that already. Any of that happened to anybody before? Yeah, he wants to feed you his word. He wants you to grow. We're not, we're not trying to be wimpy Christians, weak and, 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 and frail and, and unable to understand the will of God for our lives. That's not where we're supposed to be. He has gained you victory so that you can know him and so that you can grow in him. And that's what I'm asking you to do this week, to engage the Lord. Why don't you bow your heads now? We have some people coming that are going to be here for prayer. Bow your heads, please, as the worship team comes. Everybody else settle down, a little movement. It's okay. If there's uh, ladies, we have a lady from our women's ministry up here on the right. Um, There's a gentleman from our men's ministry back there. There's a couple um, Pastor David and his wife back here on the left, if you need prayer for anything, you can do that. But as you bow your head and close your eyes, I want to just say to you, please bow your head and close your eyes. If today in this place, in this time, if you have felt God's tug on your heart to come to him, please bow your heads. I don't want to distract anyone. And you've sensed that and, and you, you know it, it's the Lord and you don't know him, but you want to know him. And you can simply raise your hand here right now with every head bowed, every eye closed, and the Lord will see you. And he will receive you into his kingdom. He wants to forgive you of your sin, and he wants to transform your life. And so if you want that today, raise your hand wherever you are, and the Lord will receive you. And also, if you've, if you've been away from him today, I'm going to encourage you. You can still put your hand up as I talk if you want to come to know him. But if you've been away from him and you felt the call back to him today, I want to encourage you when the worship begins to get out of your seat And go to one of the people up here that will pray for you. And the Lord will receive you. And Father, we do thank you that you have heard and seen and been in our midst teaching us and guiding us through all that you've shared this morning, Lord God. I pray that, Lord, you would seal it in our hearts, that you would cause it to bear fruit in our lives. I pray that you would go before us this week providing a clear path, Lord, that you would give discernment where discernment is needed, Be with us in our cars, on the highways, Lord, in the classrooms, in the workspaces, the the cubicles, the marketplaces, the shops, and the hospital rooms, Lord. Wherever and anywhere your people go, Lord, guide us, lead us, and reveal yourself to us more and more. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, saints say amen. Amen. Why don't you stand on your feet? Let's worship. If you need prayer, please come forward.